Hello and welcome to the Pastcast. I'm Callum Henderson and I'm joined by Carly Hiltz, editor of Current Archaeology magazine. Uh, hello Carly, what are we talking about today? Hello, uh, we're going to chat about some really exciting research that is shedding all kinds of light on the early medieval period in, in England and particularly what happened in terms of population movement at the time. So it's all based on genetic research that was recently published in Nature and Since then, we've worked with the paper's authors to put together a special issue of CA, which is issue 392, where we've really dived deeply into how the science works and have also drawn out some of the key insights from the data. Uh, That includes what these new findings add to our understanding of cemetery populations and burial traditions and grave goods, as well as settlement patterns and, and bigger, more nuanced ideas like whether different groups integrated or kept themselves separate and concepts of identity and kinship and gender. It, it's been so fascinating learning more about this research while putting the special together. And in particular, there are some wonderful human stories emerging from the data. And so we've asked one of the project's key contributors, Duncan Sayer, to come and tell us more about this. We have indeed. And uh, yes, without further ado, here's our conversation with Duncan. So uh, welcome, Duncan. It's lovely to have you with us today. Um, Could we start? Hello. Thanks, Matt. Uh, (laughs) It's lovely to be here. (laughs) Great to have you. I wondered if we could start by talking about how the project came about in the first place. So you yourself, we know, have been involved in projects using DNA to investigate cemetery sites for, for over a decade, beginning, I think, at Apple Down in 2010. So uh, how has the science advanced over that time? And and how did the research published in this recent Nature paper, and of course the the special issue, how did that come together? It's quite a good question, really, isn't it? Because it's sort of the what was the thinking and where were you going and and why sort of question. And certainly when when I started off with this, I didn't envisage it would be anything like this. Um, Really, it was... um, Cedric so Edwards and I um, met up uh, over a beer in Oxford when she was Excellent. there um, because she was applying to the Leverhulme to to do a DNA project, uh, having uh, come over to sort of help the ancient DNA lab there to set up and, and operate. And she was really interested in this question of um, British survival and continental migration. And so we we sort of had a look um, and we plotted out what sort of burials we were interested in, uh, whether we were interested in questions like proximity or variation in grave goods or location in cemetery, that sort of stuff. And and had quite a a great discussion doing that. Um, And then she went off and and sampled. We got the funding, which was excellent, um, involved the the rest of the staff at Oxford and um, she went off she got the funding went sampled Apple Down but back then um, there was less knowledge about where DNA survives so the the museum suggested they didn't want to destroy some bones that might be important later on because obviously DNA sampling is is destructive Um, and so my understanding is that they they sort of focus on the feet, but since that project, what we've discovered, what DNA scientists have discovered, is that the the place where DNA survives best is in the petrous bone, because the petrous bone is very very dense and has very low blood supply, and that's the inner ear bone, uh, and that means there's not so much bacteria floating around to denature cells or or DNA, 
and it means you get that really, really good survival. Teeth still work very well, uh, but you definitely don't want to be going for teeth for feet. Having <laughs> <laughs> said that, um, they did get some DNA from that out of, um, out of what they did. It just wasn't usable at that time. Um, so sort of that, that all disappeared and we sort of carried on. Uh, and my next major involvement in in DNA stuff was as a result of excavating at Oakington. Um, and it was a bit, of a bit of luck, really. I was always interested in talking to geneticists because that is, it, for ages, we've known that the only real answer to some of the questions we have is DNA. Okay, And my primary interest actually wasn't migration at all. Um, I kind of decided to studiously avoid that question in most of my previous work. Uh, I left other people to do it. What I was mostly interested in was was family, was was relationships between people, and trying to understand the nature of these extremely complicated cemeteries. And so I felt the first way to do that really would be to, to dig one, because I don't think you could really understand the archaeology unless you engage with the actual physical evidence, not just the material, but the, that contacts, that experience as well. So I excavated at Oakington, which has been featured in current archaeology a number of times. It has it wonderful excellent. sites. <laughs> it's a lovely site. Uh, very special to me, obviously. Um, but that's obviously, that's in Cambridgeshire. Um, and at the same time we were doing that, uh, the Sanger Institute in, in Cambridgeshire was, was expanding and growing. And one of the things they discovered when they were building their new labs is some contemporary cemeteries. And so they started putting feelers out to see what other projects were going on in and around Cambridgeshire to try and compare the genetic information from the two, see if they could do an ancient DNA project. And of course, we had we had Oakington, so we got involved. Um, we gave them loads of samples and they sampled those three sites, compared them. We had Iron Age and, and Anglo-Saxon to virus the background genetic um, signature or, or result um, and to provide us for that early medieval sample. Uh, and that what resulted from that was the 2016 paper that we published in, in Nature Communications. Um, and that one really was the first full genome sequencing attempt to, to get DNA and successful. And so oh. you, that was absolutely thrilling. Yeah. Uh, at the time, it was rev- revolution, really, um, because we hadn't done it before. Um, for me, it was brilliant because it's like Oakington, and I can see all these different things going on. Uh, with the four samples we ended up with the sequences for, um, where two of them were migrants from Northern Europe. Uh, one of them was almost certainly, uh, for want of a better term, indigenous to the British Isles. And then the third one was, or fourth one was this hybrid. It's like, that's amazing. Because that answers loads of questions about how those different populations, if you want to call them that, if you want to think of them as separate populations, come together or not. Because, you know, quite a lot of the historical literature describes separation between um, those two ethnic groups. So the fact that those four samples show that wasn't the case was really interesting. In that study, we also, uh, the population geneticists interested in the big picture stuff. And so they also illustrated a significant uh, migration during that time. But four samples isn't enough really archaeologists like loads of samples don't we (laughs) and if you want to do really good statistics you need loads you can't just do four um and so it's definitely i kept in touch and kept talking um and i kept sending him samples uh and eventually we we got to the point where we had what was probably one of the biggest uh, uh 
DNA's projects that was ongoing at that time. There's lots of other projects that are happening as well. But we took a, a quite slow approach to thinking about this one. Um, and then uh, David Reichs at Harvard uh, knew that we were doing that and collecting all these samples. Um, and he had a small number, uh, or a smaller number than we did, <laughs> still quite a big number. Uh, so he shared his data with us. And then we added to it, we sort of, it snowballed and we added more and more and more sites, including um, John Hines gave us Lake and Heath um, and Andrew Richardson gave us uh, Dover Buckland. So suddenly then we had a whole series of, of quite significant sites. We had all those original samples from Apple Down. It was wonderful to see those come back again. Uh, and then we had Wes Heselton from the Harvard lot. Um, and then we had, um, as I said, Lake and Heath, Dover Buckland and Oakington. So we really started to, to have what was a, an extremely exciting sample set from well-known, well-excavated cemeteries. And some of them were quite big. You know, the, um, the samples that we took initially were small, tentative, like, you know, well, in the first paper, uh, just 10 samples uh, analysed. In the second run of Oakington samples, I took that up to about 26. Uh, and that's what we've published now. Um, but by the time we came to the end of the paper, we were sampling 72 from from Dover. So that was really an opportunity to to do this sort of study where you can compare that sort of population level um, statistics alongside that sort of local level, uh, what's going on. Because actually, for me, I think the answer to the migration questions are about those relationships and those little communities. What are they doing? What are the decisions that individuals are making? And that's that big data gives us that information. So we, we have a small number of, sort of early medieval sources that talk about population movement um, in the post-Roman period. Uh, what do they say happened and, and have, the, have the new findings supported or undermined those narratives? Thank you, Callum. I think that's a very important question. It sort of speaks to the history of archaeology, doesn't it? Where where are you with with history? <laughs> um, yes. So we've got uh, Gildas, Bede, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that talks about movement of people, migration of people, and there's some degree of contemporaneity. So Gildas is supposed to be talking about the same time as we describe a migration period. Are they talking from? The very far west, and he probably has no eyewitness experience. Um, and really, he's sort of those those narratives are sort of um, described in the collapse of the world. This sort of Armageddon has come. Oh my God! There's the Saxons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so they're not unbiased. And Bede also, you know, is, is writing from. Uh, a, a monastery in the north of Britain. He's not in the south or the east where he's describing these things. And he's writing later than the, the period we normally associate with, with the migration period. He's also writing in ecclesiastical history. So actually it makes sense for him to describe this sort of dark descent um, as punishment by God, which is then saved by um, a conversion to Christianity and everything else. And I think what's important to remember is his, his viewpoint, his mindset in that sort of late 7th, 8th century, uh, 8th century, his mindset is very much shaped by what's going on at that point. And at that point, we have the sort of um, established Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Okay, And the material culture that we see in cemeteries at the end 
of the seventh century seems to map on to where those Anglo-Saxon kingdoms are. They're calling themselves these things. So isn't it convenient then that the ethnic groups he describes Anglo-Saxon as Jews map on perfectly to the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms? Yeah. And I think that's that's a really important point to take. We always tend to interpret via the lens of our contemporary experience. And that's probably what Bede is doing there as well. Sure. Interestingly, and John Hines points out in in the CA issue, I think it's a really important point, is that they never really describe massive migrations. They really only describe quite small-scale stuff. So, you know, perhaps that's sort of quite an interesting point. Right, so now, I think largely because of the, the sort of, yeah, as I've just said, we interpret things through our own lens. And that's certainly what has happened in, in history and archaeology over the last 100 years or so, where we start off with this uh, viewpoint that follows Bede, sort of E.T. Leeds and co. going, yep, migration, how do we demonstrate the truth of the history using archaeology? But by the 1960s, archaeologists decided to reject that narrative for a whole host of reasons um, around uh, whether it's okay to to talk about ethnic groups around um, the sort of idea of indigenous empowerment. So perhaps can these ideas, can this new material culture be derived in uh, the vacuum that's left by the collapse of the Roman Empire um, from an indigenous community making contact with, but not necessarily being replaced by a migrant community. Uh, and so as we arrive into the last sort of decade or so, there are archaeological publications that effectively say there is very, very little migration at all. It is uh, a movement of ideas, possibly of objects, an inspiration rather than this mass migration. And so the DNA data turns that on its head a little bit. We have to recognise that there is a very, very significant movement of people. But we're probably not looking at a single event where everybody stands up, uh, gets in boats and moves across the North Sea. We're probably talking about something that took place from, you know, it started off at some point in the late Roman period um, and goes right the way through the 5th, 6th, 7th and 8th centuries and probably joins on to the later Viking movement from the North Sea zone. So a continuous movement of people that is probably sees an upsurge during this sort of um, this period that's been left by the Roman occupation or administration. Um, and that should, you know, over multiple generations, I think, is, is where that signature comes from. And certainly what we can see in the archaeological data, when we look at the DNA, and we have, we're very fortunate enough that um, Sam Leggett's isotope data for her PhD dovetails beautifully in timing, but also in terms of results as well. And we can see DNA says, you know, what's the heritage of these people? Isotopes can tell us who got up and moved and who is born locally. And we've got people who are born locally who are 100% continental Northern European. So not everybody we identifying moved. Some of them were born locally to parents who had both moved or whose grandparents had all moved. Okay, So the genetic signature is not just about massive movement of people. It's about that sort of settlement and the establishment of those communities and how they then reproduce within that space. 
I mean, community reproduce rather than individuals. Well, of course, individuals reproducing is effectively what makes that happen. Of course. So having having talked about um, the impact of this movement on a, on a population level, obviously we can use this data to, to look on that smaller community level you mentioned before too, that uh, you talked about how groups came together or, or in some cases didn't. And I wonder if we could talk a little more about that. Um, within the cemeteries you looked at, are there differences between groups with different ancestry in terms of, of where and how they were buried? Or or do they seem to have been more integrated or, or treated in more similar ways? Yeah, thanks for that, Carly. Um, what, we, what was really nice about having a big data set was that we could do statistics on it. Um, and one of the things that comes off from that statistics is that there is regional differences in the... Uh, in the results um, in between individual cemeteries, but also groups of cemeteries in, in, in those regions. And that's, I think, quite important. We also can't see this uh, migration event as something that is um, the same for everybody, sure. either people who are moving or those communities that they're moving alongside. Um, and I think that that that's what that data really tells us. So, for example, at Appletown, and you know, very pleased to have those samples, um, we can see a community that appears to be separated along burial rites. So, east-west versus north-south burials very loosely describes a different attitude towards uh, how people are uh, interring the dead, and it might simply be that they're doing that because of a series of family traditions that are being taught from one group to another group. How, this is how you prepare a person from your community who's died. This is how you lay them out. This is the orientation that you lay them out on. What's quite clear is there's two very different ways of dressing the dead and very different ways of orientating those, uh, those dead. And that also happens to correspond to the genetics as well. So we've got a pattern of tradition. And that does talk a little bit about separation. Where we move across to Kent, where we have a lot, you know, three different cemeteries that we included in the study, uh, Pole Hill, Eastry, at, uh, Updown, and, uh, and Dover Buckland, we see integration. And at Dover in particular, we have a family, one big family that we've identified in our sample set uh, over uh, several generations. We've got two or three generations where we have predominantly continental Northern European ancestry. And then there's quite clearly a point where there is a moment of intermarriage between a man from that family and a woman from outside that family who is 100% Western British Irish ancestry. And so their children are 50-50 and hybrids of those two. And their children, that 50-50 remains. So there must be another point at which there is this Western British Irish uh, genetics uh, coming into it again. So we've got multiple points of intermarriage between um, different generations of people. What I love about that is that it's the last generations that are most likely to have grave goods. And that's that's quite cool. It's not necessarily the first generation, those people who may have been immigrants, buried with weapons and brooches and stuff like that. Those are things that come out later on in that example. So that tells a story of integration. If we go, if we move up the coast to East Anglia, Oakington, my favourite site, yes. <laughs> uh, is really neat because we've got some very prominent burials 
with Western British Irish Association. So the cow who we feature on the front cover of oh, CNA. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we didn't even realise when we started excavating it because uh, you normally assume that there's a horse. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't until we saw that there were horses. We were like, there's a cow. <laughs> so she is 66%, something like that, uh, Western British Irish ancestry. So she's very prominent. Uh, well, I say local, but I mean local to the British Isles. We don't know if she was local to, to Cambridgeshire, but probably. Um, and I think that's really important. And it's mirrored elsewhere as well. So at uh, Eastry, as an updown Eastry, we've got a man buried under a barrow with a CX. And he is also 100% Western British Irish. So there are people of mixed and or uniquely indigenous, for want of a better word, ancestries who are buried in very, very early medieval East Coast ways. They're sort of culturally Anglo-Saxon cemetery kind of ways of burying the dead with artefacts and that sort of stuff. And that's neat. At some sites like uh, West Heselton and Lakenheath, we do see a very strong presence of grave goods and CNE ancestry. So that's clearly there is different things taking place across different sites, different decisions within local communities, down to the family level, and, and regionally as well, I think, which is which is neat. What that big picture stats tells us also is that there is a slight tendency for women of Western British Irish ancestry to be buried with fewer or or without grave goods. Um, but what I don't know is, that, is whether that has anything to do with ethnicity whatsoever. Everything I've just said to you suggests that ethnicity isn't really that important. It's a modern preoccupation, not something that was particularly interesting to these communities at that time. Because they had to work with who was there and who lived in their spaces. Um, And, you know, everybody was a resource. Everybody was contributing to the community in one way or another. So what I suspect is that if you look at the sort of uh, haplotype, The fact that we have a smaller number of women of Western British Irish ancestry than we do others suggests actually that those women are marrying into the sites, the communities that we're investigating. So is that lack of grave goods because of how they were thought of in life? I don't think it is. I suspect it's because there were less people there of their community who were burying them in the first place. Okay. So it's actually more about marriage patterns and you know where your group are, if you like. So that that needs to be explored in a lot more detail. And I think that's something that I'd, I will be very interested in over the next, oh, let's say, five or ten years. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> really trying to look at those those sorts of patterns and movement. Definitely, that would be a really interesting question. We've talked about. Um, identities for the in-group or out-group but could we also talk about how they could be used to explore ideas of say gender Duncan I know we covered that in the in the special or people's identity maybe thank you Carly I think again this is something that is really interesting about DNA because uh, obviously men have Y chromosomes and women have two X chromosomes so the genetic says whether you're someone is biologically a man or a woman occasionally there are uh, genetic uh, conditions that result in, in slight differences. And we do have one example of that, actually, from, from Lake and Heath. But aside from that, um, 
what the genetics have been able to do in this case is tell us where the errors are in skeletal sexing, which is quite interesting. We have a whole host of, of examples where um, there were graves buried with weapons, some very famous examples from Dover Buckland and from West Hazelton. Graves with weapons that had been assessed as either not sure, probably female or female. And sprung out of that is this whole discussion about uh, gender fluidity in the archaeological record and multiple genders uh, being described okay, by Anglo-Saxon um, burial practices in those, in those cemeteries. Um, and it's very interesting, I think, a very worthwhile discussion. So it's a little bit sad to see that all of those burials turn out to be men from the, from the genetics. Yeah, the same is true the other way around as well. So we've got a number of examples where uh, there were burials that have been identified skeletally um, as uh, men, but had artefacts that we would normally associate with with the female gender in this in this burial culture, and they also turned out to be women. We do have one example that is not the case, and that's quite nice because all that nuance isn't isn't lost. There's a lot of really important conversation in there about identity expression and burial practice and how and why somebody might be buried with, with particular objects. And I think the nuance is still there because there are definitely degrees of masculinity and femininity evident in that record. But one example that's a bit different is, is this uh, early teenage boy from West Heselton. And he's buried with an equal arm brooch. It's a very small equal arm brooch. Um, and it, it almost certainly is early. So probably looking at late 5th, maybe early 6th century. But that, that early date is really important. It's an object that has its origin in the north of Europe, in Scandinavia. Um, and so that object is probably comes from there. He was buried with that um, and with beads. Uh, objects which you normally associate with female gender. The isotope data that Janet Montgomery did a while ago now um, came up with not local. So for this boy, we're probably looking at someone who was a first-generation migrant. They actually got up and moved at some point in their life, in their childhood, presumably. We obviously don't know how long they were there for. And in that early burial practice, what we don't know is if that sort of use of brooches is a reflection of a sort of late Roman dress, whether it is really a reflection of, of gender. It may be there's a quite a lot built into this about the community you're coming into, what the expectations of people are and their dress, that sort of stuff. Okay. But, and I don't want to, I think this is a conversation that needs to be played out amongst those sort of grave goods, identity kind of, um, archaeologists because it's a really important difference in there um, and I think it's reflecting a greater nuance than we often uh, give to artifact interpretations. There's another another burial which unfortunately the, the genetics wasn't quite good enough from West Hilton to get the gender on it was just the coverage was so low and this is a, a Western British Irish man who's buried in the centre of a cluster of burials next to a little barrow. And it's a separate cluster to the main one uh, 
um, in the bit in the middle of the cemetery, and he's buried with uh, artifacts that you might associate with sort of tinkering or um, sort of economic use. I think of him as a smith, but he hasn't really got tools. He's got a whetstone and that sort of thing. Okay, but so it's interesting that other burials surround him that he has a prominent place, but he doesn't have weapons. Whereas almost all of the uh, prominent burials in West Heselton have weapons, or men anyway. So why is that difference in gender expression also crossing this Western British Irish uh, continental Northern European line? What, yeah. else, uh, what else is going on there? Is it about ethnicity? Is it about families? about role within the community? But this person still quite clearly, according to that burial practice quite a significant person we need to do uh, a little bit more work on that one because as i said the um there is no sexing data from from that burial so it still could be ambiguous but a really important contrast there in those examples no definitely it is fascinating how we can now identify these um well hard to see visually uh traits about it is fascinating uh yeah. And speaking about placing the community and connections between people, um, you can obviously also use genetic data to work out who is biologically related to who and, and crucially, who isn't. And when we were putting the special together, I was particularly interested to, to learn more about this in relation to multiple burials, how you can investigate, are these groups actually related? Um, and I wondered if we could talk a bit more about that. I think that's a really interesting aspect of the research. Yeah, something we decided to to bring out and discuss in the CA issue. Um, and again, something that, that we have thought quite a lot about um, in the archaeological literature, but also when we were doing this piece of research, why are the multiple burials come together? They are people who are buried at the same time. There's, except for Hatherdean, actually, where we have stacked burials, uh, where burial, the grave is open and burials put in and other burials are put in on top. But you, but you could see that they're not contemporary because of the way they disturb, interact or overlay each other. So in many multiple burials, you're getting people who are deliberately and purposely laid out together, which is really interesting. And I've spoken and, um, and written before about how those bodies often interact in very interesting ways with sort of hands touching each other or heads facing each other and that kind of stuff and I think part of a, a sort of a way of presenting a mortuary ritual and a way of creating a story about who those people were now what's both teeth data I had a, a PhD student who's now a, a lecturer in um, physical anthropology uh, or an anatomy with us at, at UCLAM who did a PhD on teeth and looking at this question of relationships uh, teeth is a lot cheaper than DNA because <laughs> you can just measure them and yeah. it's also non-destructive. Yeah. It's actually a really nice way of sort of doing a, a preliminary assessment, if you like, which are the key burials that we want to analyse later with, with more information. But she came up with some interesting results on a, a cemetery population level uh, saying, you know, there are often more men who are more similar than there are women, often greater diversity, which can tell us about that population genetics. But also what's interesting is that she said there are some double burials where those people are not related to each other at all. And that's exactly what the genetics says as well in many cases. Um, and that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you might have assumed that they were part of the same family or related to each other, brother or sister, or you know, maybe husband and wife. But of course we get men buried together and, and burial 
I think is it 80 or 88? I can't remember off the top of my head. But one of the burials from um, from Oakington that we flag up is these two men buried together, one with a shield and one without. Um, and actually, a good example, I thought, the taller, older uh, burial with very long legs was, was a woman when we excavated it, but the genetics says it's a man. So two men buried together, not related to each other at all. No association. In fact, um, that individual, that very tall individual, is almost certainly from outside of the community mm. because there, there is no one with similar uh, genetics. So that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. There's, there's a story there that needs a lot more following up. Yeah. By contrast, at, at Lakenheath, we have these two children buried together. And that's something we flag up in the CA article. I got quite a lot of coverage in, in, the, in the press around that as well. It was one of the stories that I think really spoke to people. It was this boy of around 15 and a girl who was probably a little bit younger, maybe 12, somewhere around there. Um, and they were buried together um, and they were buried in very close proximity to each other, almost like they were sleeping and curled up together. Yeah. They were buried with some artefacts, so they were dressed in that usual way for, for the East Anglian burial tradition. Um, and the genetics reveals that they are first degree related to each other, so brother and sister. Yeah. And that's a family tragedy to lose both at the same time. Yeah. And what was interesting is that not that far away is an older male um, and he's sort of riddled with arthritis and various other things. So although some skeletal archaeologists would say 45 plus, actually he probably is much older than that. Sure. And he is their father. Yeah. So it is moving into the world of speculation a little bit because obviously you can't tell where people were at various points in their life using archaeology but you can absolutely imagine there's this family tragedy and the children die and they're buried together and really you can start to talk about maybe he was there maybe he helped be an architect of that because we can identify that he was their father so yeah, it's, it's 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 a sad story, isn't it? It is. We but are, he's old enough to have outlived both of them. Outlived both of them by some considerable time. Yeah. But also, it's an important story because one of the things that this mantra that we always get, we always hear, is that the dead don't bury themselves. True. But now we can say who did. Ah. <laughs> he was there, possibly. So yeah, you know, perhaps that is quite an important part of this narrative, isn't it? Actually, we can start to see that there were people who may well have been involved in that and see what they were buried with and where they were buried and how they were buried and that sort of feeds into that and that's something that we saw in our huge family group as well at, at Dover um, where we had these multiple generations and there's one point because and for the first three or four generations they're all buried in the same space next to each other aunties and uncles and cousins and, and great granddads and all together okay and then there's one point where we have a woman who, with artefacts, is buried in a different cluster of burials. And perhaps this is sort of movement for marriage, not moving far because clearly the, the, the settlements are around that landscape, but just being buried in a different space, maybe a different family plot within the cemetery. But her child, one of her children, died as a child. And interestingly, that child is buried 
amongst her parents and grandparents. So she took it back to her family's burial space for that. Her adult children, she has two adult children who are buried next to her in the space that she's buried in. You can imagine that they chose where she was buried because that's for them, that's who she was. She was their mum and she was part of her their dad's family. Yeah. Okay, as well as having those connections. So they chose that and they buried her there. And that's really this question is that who buried the dead in action, I think, is there. What generation you are, um, how you interrelate and see that person that you're choosing to bury is such an important part of this story and how these sites develop over time. And it's really clearly articulated in that there, which is which is really neat. And on the more individual level, there have been some lovely stories emerging from the data where you can reconstruct some of the life histories of specific people. Can we talk a bit more about some of these? What I particularly like is uh, Burial 250 from Dover Buckland, who's a woman. And she has a V2 haplotype, which is not seen anywhere else on that site. So what we can say from that is that she doesn't have any of her matrilocal uh, matrilineal family there because it's a, a mitochondrial um, signature a haplotype so she can't there is her mum isn't there her sisters are not there her aunties aren't there that's not there okay um sam leggett's isotope data says not local in fact uh, i pushed sam on this one and she just we actually suggested she was sort of slightly more happy to talk about probably scandinavia and uh, that's important because she's buried with a bracteate, a gold bracteate. She's actually one of the wealthiest female burials in the cemetery, which is probably also quite important. Uh, Gold bracteate is an object that's associated with Scandinavia. And there is some discussion in the typology about whether those Kentish bracteates, and there's not very many of them, are a slightly looser and less focused form than the ones you see in in Norway um, and other parts of Scandinavia, and so might be uh, local in their manufacturer copying style and so you can sort of think about this in two ways you know i think this is very clear evidence of exogamy but on quite a high level this is a woman who's traveling to kent at some point in her early life sam's isotope data indicates not local aged up to about 15 and with a local signature after that okay so that means at about the point where she is a teenager, um, she may be married off to somebody else. I don't know whether that happens against her will or maybe she did fall in love with a, a, a Kentish traveller. Who knows? But for whatever reason, she moved to Kent. And either, I suspect, this bracket's a really important part of who she is because of that. Either she was given a bracket from her home community and brought it with her. She wore it and was buried with it as part of that identity expression. You know, her family in Kent recognising that's part of who she was and that sort of extra exoticness was was part of who she was, that, you know, you can never quite change your accent. Um, You can never quite get rid of dress patterns and styles and maybe that's part of that. Or maybe if it is a local Kentish object that's copying um, those types of, of, of Scandinavian artefacts. Maybe that community, having invited him, welcomed her in as a very wealthy, high-status family, I think, in that, in that part of Kent, given her grave goods. Um, maybe they then 
copied an object that was familiar to her so that she felt part of that that she could feel that she could continue to have that identity and either way that's really interesting isn't it and it speaks quite a lot about her personhood how she was perceived by her new community uh, and how she sort of fitted in and, it, and, and that was expressed and, and as a worn object that was inseparable from her and her identity so i like that we can start talking about these things in a bit more detail Sure. Yeah, DNA really does talk to us about personhood in a way that I think gives us a new dimension. Definitely. And then, of course, we also have Up Down Girl. Yeah. And Up Down Girl is the one that got it really, I think, hit a chord with um, the press and, and the public generally, which was really nice to see. And we got some really great coverage in, in uh, national newspapers and local newspapers. Yes with a focus on, on Uptown Girl and the rest of the, the, rest of the stuff that I've, I've talked to you about today. Uptown Girl is really interesting because she's about 33% of her DNA points to a West African heritage. And that would be her uh, granddad, probably. Okay, so 33% is not an exact figure. You get 50 of, 50% of your genetics from your parents. Um, each one giving you 50% but your grandparents are not necessarily giving you 25% because that 50% from your parents could be any of their DNA. So it could be that 75% of that 50% is from grand, great-granddad, great-grandma. So it's not quite that neat Mendelian genetics that we learn at school where everything is split into quarters and halves. It's sort of a little bit more messy, which is interesting to learn about. Anyway, her... Heritage then goes back some time, but it's still, given that her artifacts and that cemetery point to uh, early 7th century, possibly late 6th, but more confidently early 7th century dates, her granddad is still someone who was um, in the early medieval world, not in the Roman world. And that's really interesting because my initial assessment of this was this is, this is uh, evidence of that late Roman imperial administration that we know that we have quite a lot of mobility within the empire about, but we're several hundred years off. It can't be. There has to be some other reasoning behind finding her in that cemetery. But what I think is really neat about it is that her two uh, aunts or great aunt, I think it's a third and fourth generation uh, degree uh, relationship there. So we've got a grand aunt and a great aunt or a great aunt and a greater greater aunt uh, but nonetheless her relatives um, are buried nearby and those two are probably mother and daughter they're buried with artifacts as uh, died in adulthood up down girl died as a child um, but they're all buried in a cluster as they were at david buckland if you remember we just talked about our family at david buckland is buried close together so these women are buried close together there's another male with a spear buried who's related to those two um, aunts, this, the mother and daughter, buried in that little cluster of, of burials as well. And up down girl is right there with them. Also buried with artifacts. She's got a pot, she's got a comb, she's got a spoon. Okay. So she is treated exactly the same as everybody else. She is part of that community, she's part of that family. And I think that's really, really important. It sort of speaks back to what I was saying before. Ethnicity isn't really such a thing for these people in these communities at this time. Yeah. No, exactly that. But as you say, she's treated just like everybody else. Because um, I don't know if, if you mentioned, but her aunt, great aunt, 
they on the other side of the family, aren't they? They have different ancestry to her, and yet they're still being treated exactly the same. That's a good point. Exactly. Yeah. So they are uh, what we yeah ninety nine point nine nine percent, sort of near one hundred percent CNE. So they are uh, from continental Northern Europe, and you're right. It's up down girls' father's side that we see that uh, heritage, whereas her mitochondrial DNA, that female lineage, is from that continental Northern European group. So, no, but it, that just illustrates that, that these these um... But they're still one group. It's lovely. Yeah, it is. Lovely, lovely. And um, we talked a little before about sort of future research questions, uh, but I'd love to expand on that as we come towards the end of our recording. Um, where do you think and hope that this kind of research will go next? And, and what else do we need to, to add to this picture? And, and how could other disciplines feed into this to help illuminate this further? Yeah, important question. Where do we go next? Uh, well, we've uh, Stefan, Joshua, and I have already met and discussed what happens next. <laughs> but also, in, in terms of sort of broader genetics, archaeology collaborations, I think what, what's been really nice in, in recent um, papers that we've seen, sort of around last Christmas, and, and with this one, is this this the the amount of archaeology being included is is increased, and therefore what we're really seeing is is contributing very significantly to the way we can explore not just migration, but identities, families, personhood, gender. You know, suddenly this is speaking right to the heart of, of archaeological conversations that we've been having now for, for quite a long time, which is which is brilliant. But what we really need to explore those fully is whole cemeteries. So, you know, we'll we'll be going back to some of our sites and sampling the rest of them. I already have um, 26 or so. Uh, of the infants from Oakington that we've sequenced that we're looking at. Um, and what I really want to know is if the infants are related to the adults. It seems like a basic question, but we've got very few relationships at Oakington, whereas at other sites we have loads. So what is going on and why are these cemeteries so different? And I think that's going to be a really interesting question. So it's that, for me, it's that relationships, exploring those a lot further in a lot more detail, uh, comparing sites in the way that we we do with all, in all sorts of other ways, but really sort of squirreling down right into that sort of who is who and how are they related to each other? What does that mean on a population level, uh, on a sort of mobility, exogamous marriage, men moving, women, um, you know, uh, or women moving or, or, or how that works and what that means then for the, the structure of society. So I think we can, we can start doing that, that sort of stuff. I think we will still explore... Uh, all these these questions about integration, um, about population genetics and migration, but personally, I'm really interested in those those little micro stories that are the vehicles for those big picture population movements. And really, in our study, we've got the the, the south coast starting in Dorset and then all the way up to the east coast, going up to to Yorkshire. But what we don't have are bits in the middle and to the west of Britain. And it'd be really nice to see that picture being filled as well. So lots and lots more samples. I think genetics has got a lot cheaper recently. Um, and I think it's going to become as common as, as radiocarbon dating and isotope work. And that really is going to, to speak to us in all sorts of interesting ways. And all that data that we have is, is all available in the libraries in public access. So 
you know, what we've really done is scratch the surface of looking at what you can do with a full genome. There's so much more you can do with it that hasn't been done yet. So I think it's just going to be really exciting opportunities ahead for, for many people. Definitely, it is exciting. Uh, and for you personally, Duncan, how have the findings impacted on how you see the early medieval period? Um, that's a good question. How have they... <laughs> It made it more interesting. <laughs> Not that it wasn't interesting before. <laughs> Being a professor of, of early medieval archaeology, no, I think no, it's, no, uh, you know, I've always been interested in it. But I think for me, this has got even more interesting. You know, um, and I've always been driving towards to understanding um, the cemeteries, the structure of communities, and it's gave me it's given me a way to do that in a really powerful way. So, I think for me, it, it you know we we've moved away from. These sort of associations that people were making after the war, where we were looking at you know, ranks of officers based on weapons and thinking about it very much as a male uh, migration, possibly even a martial or military experience, very hierarchical. I think that that sort of model of um, early medieval England no longer really works. I think now we're really getting down into a much more human aspect and i don't want to suggest for a second that life wasn't difficult i think it probably was you know the people that we're describing here all died much younger than we would expect to uh to lose family i think you know i think violence was probably still part of how you existed and how you survived against hostile neighbors or you know when resources get a bit low, I'm sure the people at Oakington weren't uh, weren't above uh, going over to um, Suffolk or Norfolk and, and stealing a few cows. Um, you know, I think that these stories are still quite important. But I think what it does now is is rather than foregrounding the martial experience, it's foregrounding the family experience, and that is really what the Anglo-Saxon poetry is also telling us. If you look at the Wanderer. You know, the lamentation about being far away from family is what's most evident there. I think that, you know, that's what's critical here. You know, we, we live in individualistic societies, don't we? We're all people in our own rights. We're persons. And these guys were too. But that relationship, that interconnection is who you were. That's what matters. The beginning of Beowulf he doesn't say, hey, I'm Beowulf, my hero. He says, I'm Beowulf, and this is my dad, and this was my granddad, and this is my granddad's dad. And then the guard at the, on the island knew who he was. As you say, it's these, these human connections, these personal connections that I think are really powerfully emerging from the archaeological evidence now. It's, Absolutely. It, it's wonderful. That was Duncan Sayer talking to us there. And don't forget you can read his article in the most recent issue of Current Archaeology magazine as well as the entirety of the magazine online at the PASS website via the link in the description. That's all for this week. Thanks to Duncan for joining us, and thank you for listening.